Hello and welcome to this podcast from Conway Hall, London, where ethics matter. To find out more about our programme of talks and concerts, visit conwayhall.org.uk or find us on social media. In this talk, recorded in November 2020, archaeologist Stacey Hackner explores our current understanding of history and its tendency to reproduce white gender roles and capitalist patriarchy. So tonight I'm going to be talking about uh, myths we have about prehistory. So some of these myths that we have are relatively benign uh, in that they're just just a bit wrong and others really insidiously work to uphold uh, dangerous ideas about the world. Um, some of these can be seen in ancient aliens and similar material. Uh, when we talk about the ancient world, particularly when we lack historical evidence, we really need to question where these ideas come from uh, and how we use them in society today so we can stop reiterating them and rehashing things that uh, can actually be uh, quite, quite insidious or have a very uh, dangerous past. Uh, so my personal research focuses on uh, re-examining concepts of work, activity, and gender from a number of both ancient and modern non-Western groups. Uh, so I look at what men did and what women did and how we tend to conflate those uh, and put them into categories saying these are men's jobs, these are women's jobs, uh, and really the boundary is not so clear. Um, I do an analysis of bone structure indicating who performed which tasks, and I also do a bit of epidemiology of ancient disease, which I'll get into later. Uh, if you want to tweet at me during this talk, then it's at StacyTG. There is no E in it. Uh, so let's talk first about some biases within archaeology. Um, I am sure that as uh, Fortean Society attendees, you know about biases within science and within other places. Um, so these, these are kind of evident in research in general. Um, yeah, perhaps, perhaps you've read about these before. Um, but so first there, there's the conservatism bias. Uh, we favor prior evidence over new evidence. It takes us a long time to accept something when we're presented with it. Uh, and also to learn that new methods are the ones that we should be using instead of the ones that we're used to. Um, so, you know, even if someone bakes you a delicious cake and they say, oh, I've used my fancy new oven and they say, well, I don't know. I don't think it tastes as good as my old oven. Um, you're being, you're uh, facing conservatism bias. Uh, so this also happens quite often in medicine. Um, for instance, in the mid 1800s, it was difficult to convince doctors that hand washing could actually prevent infection. Uh, now we know hand washing can really prevent infection. It took a good uh, 75 years, at least for that to catch on. There's also confirmation bias. We only believe information that adheres to our preconceptions. And this goes hand in hand with conservatism bias too. We believe what we want to believe and we reject anything that doesn't mesh with our beliefs. Um, so I find that in my work and in, in life in general, these tend to be about social roles, about what people should and shouldn't do based on their age, their sex, their gender, their class, their nationality. Um, so there's also lack of evidence. We say in archaeology frequently, absence of evidence is an evidence of absence. Uh, just because we haven't yet discovered something doesn't mean that it can't be true. And so this is why whenever a new oldest thing is discovered, the media really freaks out and they say, oh, we've just pushed back our understanding of X concept, whether it's beer making or bread baking or uh, cannabis use. Um, and that contradicts everyone who said, well, you know, this thing was only 1,000 years old. Um, but no, that's when we have the oldest evidence. And because archaeology is still, is still in progress, we're still discovering new things every day, um, uh, it keeps being reinvented and we keep finding new evidence. Uh, trust and authority. Um, I know I'm saying these things as literally an authority. 
uh, and we should really be questioning everything uh, because academics tend to come from a very small privileged group with outside influence. But for the purpose of this lecture, believe me, believe me now, <laughs> and you can raise your doubts and the questions. Hey, Stacey, it's Conway Hall here. Your slides aren't showing. Oh, uh oh. Thank you for letting me know. Share. It didn't turn on the share screen. Sorry, I thought that was deliberate. Sorry, everyone. Oh, sorry. Can you see them now? Yes. Great. Yeah. You've, you've only missed this this slide, so it's that's pretty fine. Thank, Thank you. you. Uh, okay, so uh, where was I? Um, so we do tend to believe uh, anyone who seems to be an authority, um, you know, you think someone must be right because they discovered this ancient city and they wrote it down in 1953 in a very authoritative voice. Um, however, I have emailed a lot of these people to ask for their evidence and they say, well, I just kind of made it up or um, I didn't really collect the data uh, or I kind of got lost. Um, so uh, really that's, that's bad science. We have to be sure that all of these authorities are doing good science um, and have good review processes in place and oversight um, uh, so that we know what's going on. Um, finally, there isn't, there isn't really a name for this kind of bias, but um, it's, um, uh, it's asking the wrong questions. It's not questioning that the people who came up with a lot of the theories for how we see the world and how we see the ancient past um, were 20th, throughout the 20th century were white European upper and middle class men. There weren't very many women. There weren't very many people from non-European nationalities, uh, particularly uh, this becomes relevant when they're looking at, you know, Egypt. Um, where are the Egyptians who are actually studying their own past? They don't come around until, or they aren't respected in the field until quite late in the 20th century. Um, so the, conclu the conclusions uh, about these theories are all seen through a very, very narrow lens. And um, that really needs to be broadened. Um, so this, their view of history has, uh, up until recently, was really influenced by you know, great wars and big men. And uh, nobody's asking questions or nobody had been until probably the late seventies, early eighties um, about what were women doing? What were children doing? What about immigration? How did that affect society? Um, what about alternative burial practices and not just the big monuments? Um, and really I, I see this ties into conspiracy theories quite a bit uh, because uh, they all, conspiracy theorists also ask, like to ask the wrong questions. Um, so for instance, last week we saw uh, a certain person say, where are the missing ballots? Well, nobody said the ballots were missing. That's, you're making up a question about um, something that nobody was wondering about. So we need to figure out what are people wondering about uh, at a general level. Um, so next, let's examine some beliefs about prehistory. First, a compacted history of the Paleolithic. Anything that calls itself paleo is probably wrong and definitely a marketing scheme. Paleo means ancient, it comes from Greek. The Paleolithic means the ancient stone age. And that describes the time when humans or hominins who are our kind of ancient cousins began making stone, stone tools as far as we know, or as far as we've discovered. Uh, we uh, actually don't have evidence of when people first started making non-stone tools. So you might see chimps um, on National Geographic videos using a little stick um, that is tool use, but we wouldn't have evidence of that because it's so long ago it hasn't preserved. Um, so we do say that the Paleolithic started around 3 million years ago in the Great Rift Valley in uh, Kenya, um, or maybe around 2.6 million years ago. 
no one's really sure. The evidence is conflicting and we're okay with that. Um, it spread to Europe around 1 million years ago uh, when people started to migrate out of Africa. Uh, and <clears throat> it, it sort of ended with the beginning of the Mesolithic or the Middle Stone Age around 15,000 years ago and then progressed very quickly into the Neolithic, the New Stone Age, which is uh, defined by the invention of agriculture. Uh, which is also very slow spread around the world. Um, but it's, it's really important to remember that the Paleolithic still continued up until, up until now, really. There are people who, who are still using stone tools around the world very effectively. Um, and I actually, uh, when I give this talk live, I have a stone tool or a stone spear that I made and it's very, very sharp. They're very good. I mean, it's not good for you know, being on a Zoom call, but if I wanted to go and hunt something, it's great. So first, um, I'm gonna go through four myths about the ancient, uh, about the Paleolithic of the ancient world. And the first is the paleo diet. Um, so it's, it's okay if you are a person who has been on the paleo diet, that's fine. Um, I, it's, it's, if, it's work, if it works for you, that's great. But the only problem I have is that it's called itself paleo when in fact it's completely a misnomer. It's nothing that actually has anything to do with the paleolithic. Um, as I said, most things that say paleo are full of marketing. Um, and here it uses a lot of ideas about the paleolithic that we kind of have in, you know, lurking in the back of our brains that aren't really true. So let's first notice these two figurines, or sorry, these two figures. Um, the man on the left, um, he isn't quite Fred Flintstone, but the woman on the right does look a lot like Wilma Flintstone, um, if you remember them from the cartoons. Uh, so keep those in mind for now. There's, you know, big man. The woman is skinny yet curvy. Um, and both in an early 2000s fashion, off the shoulder fur, um, which I quite like. So there's a lot about raw food that's part of the paleo diet, particularly raw food being natural, eating raw is good for us. Some adherents will say it's not a fundamental part of the diet, but many people do practice that. Um, however, during the paleolithic, fire wasn't invented per se, but it was harnessed. So people were finding natural fires burning um, and taking them back to their hearth at a site called Kubifora um, in Kenya. And the evidence for this is a certain type of clay that turns red when it's consistently burnt. And at the site, there's evidence that humans were using stone tools to butcher animals and also to carve other stone tools. Uh, and then there's also burnt ground. So all evidence that people were cooking their food, uh, which is great because we like cooked food. It's very, very tasty. Um, so now, now we get to my favorite hypothesis about how anatomically modern humans, so us, not um, Cro-Magnon or Neanderthals or other uh, hominin species, um, how, how we came to be, particularly with our really large fatty brains. Um, and that's called the Wrangham hypothesis after a professor Wrangham at Harvard, uh, who suggested that our massive brains relative to our body size are a result of the extra caloric value that we can get from cooking our food. Basically, if you eat a raw carrot, then you get all the fiber, but not much of the nutrients uh, or the vitamins because our stomachs can't process those. Uh, you're putting in too much energy digesting something that's really fibrous to extract every last nutrient. Um, but if you cook that same, that same vegetable, then you will get all the nutrients. Uh, the same for any food, including meat. So the hypothesis is that the calories saved on digestion were able to fuel our meaty fatty brains. Um, and we see this increased brain capacity between about 500,000 to a million years ago. 
So anyone arguing that we should be eating raw food because that's what our ancient ancestors ate isn't quite correct because it seems like they only became our ancient ancestors when they started cooking their food. Um, and you really can't turn back the clock in evolution and our big brains are here to stay. Uh, <laughs> I Basically, anyone, anytime anyone says our ancient ancestors, they are leading you down the garden path towards a certain conclusion. And that conclusion is usually uh, just ex trying to explain ways of being in modern society. Um, so also the first consistent evidence of fire is from 40 to 60,000 years ago. Um, and that's evidence of a hearth that has many, many years of scattered animal remains around it. Uh, so people were sitting at this fire, enjoying each other's company, telling stories, talking about where they're going to go hunting next. Um, so uh, another, another myth that we have is that um, all of the meat they, gave, they ate was kind of big game hunting. So, you know, there's the idea of like, oh, let's go stab a mammoth or spear a mammoth. Um, and actually, um, uh, the diet was probably composed uh, of a lot of small game, um, nuts and seeds, wild grains. So anyone saying uh, uh, bread or carbs wasn't part of the Paleolithic diet, it actually was. Who knew? Um, perhaps not baked bread, but definitely grains that maybe they made into a flour or a paste. Um, I, uh, nobody really thinks about seafood um, or fish, but they did a lot of uh, passive hunting and fishing, leaving traps. And a colleague of mine from UCL called Mariana Nabais um, researches Neanderthal sites in Southern Spain and Portugal. And she's found lots of evidence that they were eating turtles, uh, which I kind of refer to as the first pot noodle because you can kill a turtle, flip it upside down and cook it in its shell because this was before they had any pottery uh, to, to cook their food in. Um, and so instant noodle, or they didn't have noodles yet, but instant turtle soup. Uh, so yeah, so instead of thinking of people going out and hunting big things, think of them living pretty much like um, uh, any, any foraging society today that you might see in a documentary. Uh, so paleo landscapes. Um, the Paleolithic, as we discussed before, was a very, very long time. Um, and it was also worldwide. Uh, when you think of the Paleolithic, you probably think that it's very cold. Um, and you'd think that we didn't cook our food. And you're probably thinking of Europe. This is because in this, as you've seen in the slide, we always show white people. Uh, this is a mistake. Um, the Paleolithic occurred worldwide. Uh, the popular conception of the Paleolithic isn't about Africa, um, even though People were in Africa for most of it. Um, so China had a Paleolithic and the Americas had a Paleolithic and Australia had a Paleolithic. Uh, and so some of it was quite cold, some of it was quite, quite warm. So there is no one paleo diet uh, because people all around the world were eating what was available to them. Uh, so here's another uh, paleo uh, recommendation sheet. And I think it's really funny to actually look at where all of these fruits and vegetables or when they came from. And so we have things like strawberries are from the 15th century, uh, lemons are from the Neolithic, uh, bananas are Neolithic, pears, um, peppers, radishes. Uh, basically all of the fruits and vegetables that we know them today are from the Neolithic or even more recently from the middle ages or even the modern times. And the banana as we know it is from the 1800s. Uh, what's another thing so that came up around 11,000 years ago? Um, I don't know if anyone's whispering it yourselves, but it's white skin. Uh, white people are relatively recent evolutionarily. I'll we'll talk more about this later. 
um, forks. Um, the first forks were uh, from the third millennium BCE, but they only got two tines in the Roman period and three tines in um, the last 500 years. Uh, clothes also. Uh, uh, clothes uh, are, are um, uh, a, uh, late Paleo, early Meso Mesolithic from around 70,000 years ago. And the way that we know people were wearing clothes is the differentiation in genetics between head lice and body lice. Uh, great, isn't it? Um, we also have some impressions of woven cloth uh, in pottery from around 40,000 years ago. So less gross, but uh, <laughs> just, just different strands of evidence that all tie together saying that people have been wearing clothes for a long time. Uh, so let's look at a few more images. Um, uh, oh, I didn't, didn't even remark on how these are kind of robust and attractive people. Um, and particularly this man who looks kind of like Thor um, and sexy Bam Bam in a cute bikini. Um, uh, and that's also really building in these kind of gender stereotypes that I'll get to later, um, that you have this like strong man hunt and like, I'm the lady, I'm going to stay, stay home in the cave, um, which these were, these were kind of invented uh, in, in the mid 20th century uh, to, to build up the stereotypes of what society should be doing now, um, particularly with the ideal of um, the man going to work and then um, uh, his wife staying home and taking care of children in the house. Um, and so we will look at more images of this in a bit. Uh, <laughs> so another slide I found of the paleo diet is the poor caveman being really confused by all these processed foods that he can't handle because his delicate stomach hasn't had any cooked food yet. Um, so it is true that uh, processed food isn't the most nutritionally dense, um, but they weren't actually unknown uh, to ancient people. So we have evolved to prefer things that are really tasty and processed foods are really, really tasty. They've got, you know, loads of Mars bars around. Um, but they aren't, they aren't wrong or bad um, uh, just because they're, quote, unnatural. Uh, I always argue that we stopped being natural once we harnessed fire and started cooking our food. Um, and so I really don't like uh, people um, uh, argue, arguing that, oh no, this thing's unnatural, this thing's unnatural, we need to live a natural lifestyle. Um, everything we do is unnatural. I mean, I'm sitting inside, it's dark and then we've got the lights on and I'm talking to you through a tiny screen. I can eat a Mars bar. Uh, so yeah, what did, they, what did people eat in Paleolithic um, time? Um, it really, it varied around the world. Um, there is a lot of meat and fish among people who live in northern latitudes, like uh, the Inuit. But you see, compared to southern Africa, I just pointed at my screen, you can't see me pointing at anything. Uh, the, the Kung um, were eating quite a lot of seeds and nuts. So it really, really varied. Um, uh, so a lot of people will confuse the term Paleolithic with hunter-gatherers. Um, I prefer to say foragers because it doesn't make that distinction. Hunter-gatherer tends to buy into the male-female uh, binary. Um, however, these have also changed. There is an idea that people who, who, who are living in uh, foraging societies have been the same throughout uh, history. And actually their diets have changed over, even over the last 200 years since they first had contact with uh, Europeans who usually wanted to kill them anyway. Um, uh, and this is really the noble savage idea saying that these cultures are kind of preserved in time. They're in a bell jar. Um, or a time capsule, and that's really not true. Um, they uh, uh, even even so uh, places in like Borneo, 
um, they do farm, even though it doesn't fit the Western conception of what a farm looks like, they are cultivating different places throughout um, uh, the landscape uh, and changing it and planting certain things in various ways so that it's easier to harvest and that is farming. Um, that's why I know about bread. Also, we, we, we like processed food. Um, the oldest bread is, oh, I've made a mistake. The oldest bread is from 14,000 years ago. Um, my colleague, uh, Lara Gonzalez Caratero discovered it in Jordan um, and it's made of wild wheat, barley and tubers. Uh, and that's actually 4,000 years older than the earliest evidence of agriculture, which I think is really cool. So the second myth, um, cavemen live to be old. Uh, so here I have to read a quote from a New Yorker article, which says it best, um, meet Grok. According to his online profile, he's a tall, lean, ripped and agile 30 year old. By every measure, Grok is in superb health, low blood pressure, no inflammation, ideal levels of insulin, glucose, cholesterol and triglycerides. He and his family eat really healthy. Between foraging, building sturdy shelters from natural materials, collecting firewood and fending off dangerous predators, Grok's life is strenuous, perilous and physically demanding. Yet somehow he is a stress-free dude who always manages to get enough sleep and finds time to enjoy moments of tranquility beside groving creeks. He is perfectly suited to his environment in every way. He is totally zen. So this is the idea of paleofantasy, a term coined by researcher Marlene Zuck in 2010 to describe this mythical ancient time when people lived in harmony with their environment. So everything was there, it was easy to obtain. You could just kind of go out and like, you know, pluck a mammoth. Uh, <laughs> Um, and it's very uh, kind of manifest destiny, colonial um, view of nature. Um, and it's reminiscent of when Europeans came to America in the 1600s and saw it as this land of bounty. Um, and that's actually where, where these images came from. Uh, because of this idyllic lifestyle, everyone lived to be really, really old. Um, is this true? So here's actually the original New Yorker cartoon. Um, <laughs> So there's a, there are these two competing ideas that people either only live to 30 or that people live to be you know, 90 or 100 because they were so, so healthy. Both of these can't be true. Um, so everyone is basically wrong because of a misunderstanding of the average age at death. Um, so this chart shows deaths per 100,000 infants starting in 1900. Um, and it shows that over the course of the 20th century, um, uh, one reason why our total uh, or our life expectancy has gone up so much is because fewer babies are dying. And this is due to uh, advances in, in medicine, namely vaccination and antibiotics. Um, and so now our average age of death is way, way high compared to around the 1840s, one fifth of all um, children died before the age of five. Um, and so that was really, really dragging the age of death down. Um, so it, it was around 30 to 35, if you take all those into account. But once you uh, uh, if, if you do a different kind of statistic, uh, then you can see that once someone lived to five years old, they had a really good chance of living to be 15. And if you lived to be 15, you had a good chance of living to 30. And if you lived to 30, you had a good chance of living to 60. And so we do, we do have some evidence that people would have been living to um, maybe 50, 60, even 70 years old. Um, another problem is that we have few individuals who are actually preserved from the Paleolithic because of population density. Um, or now we all live in cities, we bury people in cemeteries, but there we don't really know where people lived. We don't know if all groups buried their, um, their departed near the places they were living. Uh, and even when we find um, a burial ground, there's maximum a few individuals in it and they might be very, very poorly preserved. Uh, so we don't have a very large sample size to go on. 
if we really want to know about a cemetery um, and to do a proper statistical analysis, you need at least 60 people, even for the most basic tests. Um, we also have inaccurate methods to determine age, so the invisible elderly. And so studies are still going on uh, how to accurately determine age. But if you have a uh, more wearing, stressful or physically stressful lifestyle, then your skeleton will be artificially old compared to your chronological age. Uh, whereas if you live a lovely, carefree life like rock, perhaps you'll look younger. And we don't actually know what physiological stresses people in the Paleolithic were under. And as with diet, it probably varied based on environment, um, also varied by age and sex. Uh, so we are, we're trying to fill a lot of gaps in the data with very, very few individuals. Um, so, but I, I have an inclination that people live to be um, moderately old. Uh, we also have this kind of, kind of a discrepancy of what, what we actually mean by healthy. Uh, there's a preponderance of evidence for ancient disease. Um, we actually see atherosclerosis, which is um, a calcification within the arteries and heart disease. Uh, and arterial plaque in mummies from around the world. So we see it in Peru, we see it in Egypt, we see it in Siberia, we see it in the Southwest US. Um, anywhere that people were mummified um, naturally or artificially, uh, we see that they have arterial plaque. So it seems to be just a fact of human existence and has little to do with diet because everyone's saying, no, arterial plaque and heart disease are because we eat uh, Big Macs all the time. Not true, it just happens. <laughs> so ancient people also lived with a lot of parasites which fortunately um, uh, most of us in uh, the West don't have anymore. It, it tends to be more associated with um, uh, poverty. Um, but we really did have more parasites and more diseases once we started living with animals uh, in the Neolithic. So as everyone knows from Corona, um, many of our modern diseases come from um, animal origins. They're called zoonotic. Uh, Additionally, there's this belief that cancer is a very modern disease, but actually the oldest evidence for cancer is from 1.6 million years ago. And so that doesn't mean it was very common and we can't exactly say one in 100 ancient hominins had bone cancer um, because it's just one case uh, and we don't see it again for an, about another million years. Um, so really we don't know how, how healthy people were. Um, uh, but one thing we do know, there was definitely lice uh, because that's how we uh, <laughs> know that they were wearing clothes. So myth number three, cavemen and cavewomen. Um, so for maximum effect, I recommend examining old museum dioramas or old textbooks uh, because those are the ones that tend to be really, really stereotypical about social roles. Uh, so um, what's this in the diorama? Oh, it's two men making fire. No women here. We should really be looking at who is doing the work in these situations. Uh, what kind of work are they doing? Are there children? Are they doing any work? Because it's well known that in forging societies, children actually have a lot of responsibility. Um, who is watching the children? Uh, so this is a great scene here. Um, on the right is a man who seems to be a shaman. He's wearing antlers and he's maybe doing some kind of uh, ritual or acting. Um, on the left is another man who's building something out of bone. And then there are all these women in the background who are looking after babies. Uh, they're not even very interested in what the man is doing. Um, the women in all these depictions are presented lower. They're either sitting or squatting and the men are standing up. So here's another, here's a, this one you can see there's a woman with a kid, carrying a kid somehow. There's this man in the front who's doing some work with um, skin. Um, here's another from a children's book. 
it's only men, it's only white men. Here's another, uh, men doing work, woman sitting on the floor, man is standing and hunting with his child. Um, woman is around a fire, man is eating, man is hunting. Man is hunting. <laughs> um, these, they're all basically the same. Um, they take the central idea that is men doing the work um, and women are doing work that is specifically related to cooking and childcare. This is not a, an actual depiction of how ancient societies worked. There's so much evidence from contemporary foraging societies uh, that this is not the way that gender roles are split. Um, and there's actually an article published uh, last week uh, with additional evidence that uh, women or at least female skeletons um, uh, were doing a lot of hunting, particularly of big game animals. Uh, they were buried alongside spears. You can also see in um, muscle attachments on the bones that they were doing quite a lot of work. Um, some of which is throwing, some of which is um, grinding things, um, uh, all very robust. Um, some studies have shown that they have more uh, or larger, larger muscles than modern day um, athletes, uh, female athletes at least, which is really, really cool. It takes a lot of uh, effort, um, particularly for females to build up uh, a significant amount of bone and muscle. Um, so yeah, basically you, you get it by this point. Um, it's, I think this one on the left is really interesting uh, because the, the, the man is making art on the cave wall and the woman is kind of assisting holding the, the lantern. Um, and this is also particularly great in light of recent evidence, which I will get to in a bit. Here's another scene, it's all, it's all the same. Um, uh, so I think it's really interesting to see where this kind of plays out in modern society too. And I, I kind of hit on this idea to look up family camping scenes and it's remarkable how similar they are. Uh, so that here you have the men are higher or more and more uh, closer to the camera. The women are lower, the women are doing food preparation. Um, uh, the woman on the left in the top one is cooking, uh, and, or, uh, in the bottom left and the man is, is playing music. Um, he doesn't have any role. Uh, he, he's, he's responsible for cultural transmission. We'll say, um, he's teaching songs. Maybe he set up the tents. Uh, so going back to the, um, making cave paintings. Oh, here's another man making cave paintings. I forgot about that one. Uh, there was this discovery a few years ago about these hand stencils, which is where someone puts their hand against the cave wall and kind of blows some pigment over them. Um, that most of these hand stencils, probably in up to 75% of cases, were done by women, um, or at least by female hands, um, based on size and finger length ratios. Um, and actually, I thought this was really shocking because I didn't realize until that point that I'd so bought into these pictures of men making art. Um, that women had any role in it. Uh, and this goes back to a lot of how we think of men as artists. So if you think of the uh, great artists of the Renaissance, there are very few women that anyone can name. There were a few, um, but no very famous ones. Um, uh, so, but, but in other, other cultures, I mean, there isn't a distinction who makes art and who can make art biologically. Um, uh, but we do have this distinction between men make art and women make handicrafts or folk traditions or folk art. Uh, and it's things that are used within the home. They're not shown publicly. Um, and it's 
it, it art is not a gendered activity, but we have made it so. Um, and this uh, feeds back into our ideas about who was making art in prehistory. Um, so that's the article in case you want to check it out. So myth number four, the unbearable whiteness of beings. Um, so arguably humans developed dark skin when we lost our full body fur, um, but there's plenty of skin color variation primates. So I'm not really sure about the truth that um, humans possibly had uh, dark skin um, all the way from uh, ancient evolution. Um, but so humans were dark skinned until relatively recently, um, even after moving to Northern Europe. Uh, so is it this model on the right is actually um, a more accurate representation of a Neanderthal. Neanderthals did have light skin, um, but that was due to a different gene mutation uh, than we see in humans. Um, so depictions of Neanderthals with light skin, perfectly acceptable, and also ginger hair. Um, but if you see, uh, so if you see these light haired ginger Neanderthals, that's, that's true, that's based on good genetic evidence. But if you see on the left, Cro-Magnon Jesus, uh, he shouldn't be light skinned, um, that's actually false. Um, and in fact, one of the oldest British people um, who lived 10,000 years ago in uh, Cheddar Gorge, um, he's called Cheddar Man. He actually had dark skin and blue eyes based on recent DNA analysis. Um, and a lot of people got very angry about that because they thought that the, the oldest uh, British person um, should be white. And this is really showing people's racism and white supremacy um, and lack of listening to genetic evidence. So let's go back to this image. We saw a brief clip of it earlier. Um, it is called the March of Progress. And this is also completely uh, uh, wrong as well. Uh, you've probably seen this in so many different cartoons, in so many different uh, aspects of life. It's frequently used in um, uh, comic ways. Um, it represents 25 million years of uh, evolutionary history and it was originally published in 1965. Um, it's based on a concept called orthogenesis or the idea that evolution is progressive. Um, so you start off with this barely bipedal primate and progress towards being either a corporate drone or Arnold Schwarzenegger, um, depending on which one you're looking at. Um, and it's always shown progressing towards number one, a white man, um, which is problematic because you see this and think that evolution has reached its peak at whiteness uh, and particularly white masculinity. Uh, and this is untrue. Evolution has actually led to all sorts of skin tones and levels of pigmentation uh, that are adapted to, to their local environments. So side fact, tanning is an adaptation. Um, uh, and so it allows different people at different latitudes to allow in or block sunlight and therefore get vitamin D. Um, so even if you know this, this diagram is wrong, seeing it in so many places uh, on display reinforces the, like a very subtle idea of white supremacy. Um, so also, when you were looking at the uh, di dioramas and cartoons before, did you see any people of color? The answer is no. Um, often you'll see dioramas of indigenous people in museums um, at first contact with the Europeans. So these models are made by Europeans within a European worldview in an institution that upholds Eurocentric ideas, um, particularly of colonialism. So a lot, a lot of the models in museums are still, uh, they still have these ethnographic exhibits uh, showing non-Western cultures and tribes from around the world uh, for the education of Westerners. They're not doing anything for the people that they're actually displaying, who in many times museum visitors will think that they are um, no longer around. Um, so even though the Westerners who are building these dioramas are complicit in the destruction of all of these indigenous groups, 
Um, and it's really a small step up from the, the human zoos that uh, we had um, in the uh, 19th and 20th centuries. Okay, uh, here's, here's one better one that I found. Um, it's kind of, kind of cartoonish, but it actually uses uh, 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 quite good evidence. There's another one with the furs, I like that. Okay, so <laughs> now what you've all been waiting for, um, once we recognize that our assumptions about the Paleolithic are really made, sorry, I just muted myself. They're styled after their creators who are male European academics born from 1870 to 1940. What else can we question? Is it aliens? Let's question where the belief in aliens comes from. Um, obviously, I don't believe that aliens visited Earth and meddled with our cultural heritage. I can't tell you how many times people have asked me when I worked in a museum of Egyptology um, uh, to show them alien artifacts, and I had to tell them that sadly those don't exist. Um, so first, if you do a Google search of did aliens build X, we'll give you this. So except for Teotihuacan, um, probably because um, it's difficult for English speakers to spell. Um, the furthest away from Europe are the most Googled. Uh, this is because those are the, people tend to think they're the most mysterious um, since they don't come from European cultural context. So they find it harder to understand um, uh, how those things would be built because they don't have, uh, or they aren't really taught in schools um, as part of our cultural heritage. Um, it's therefore easier to, easier to sow doubt uh, about them um, with conspiracy theorists asking leading questions. And interestingly, some people believe that aliens were involved in building Stonehenge, um, but it's more of a kind of Stonehenge is a site to contact aliens rather than aliens came in. We're like, boop, 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 boop. So what are aliens? Uh, aliens are first mentioned in a parody of Herodotus's history. So Herodotus's histories, um, uh, notoriously false. Uh, it's also where he comes up with um, the idea of Atlantis. Uh, but aliens weren't even mentioned in that. They were mentioned in a parody by Lucian of Samosata called True Histories in the second century. Um, but they kind of took a back seat until the demise of the heliocentric view of the world. So during the enlightenment, uh, when we discovered that um, earth revolved around the sun and we had a whole bunch of other planets and things going on, going on as well. And we weren't the center of the universe. Um, so this, this is when people stop believing that the earth was made for us by God. Um, uh, and it led to the idea of maybe there could be other life somewhere else. Uh, <laughs> so European culture became outward looking instead of inward looking. This was also the age of exploration, um, of colonialism, of um, promptly genocide. Uh, and so the, the alien narratives that we start to see in the 19th century took a whole lot of inspiration from colonial contact with indigenous groups. Um, so this is called the wilderness theme. Um, and you can see it in the, in the map of Mundi. So that famous map of the world that says like, here be dragons and there will sea monsters all around it. Um, so when Europeans started exploring other lands, um, the indigenous people were the monsters to them. And when we started thinking of going out of this world uh, in the 20, you know, 19th and 20th century, um, the analogy stuck and the alien encounters were akin to those of uh, feeling threatened by indigenous people. Um, so then there start to be, uh, alien contact starts to be uh, a popular topic in science fiction in the early 20th century of the worlds. 
And then there were the first canonical abduction encounters. Um, there was Antonio Villas Boas from Brazil in 1957 and the Hill abduction from the US in 1961. Um, but there had been occasional reports of mysterious airships since the 1890s. So only once people kind of knew that flying was imminently possible, did they think that there could be airships in space. Um, what we believe relies a lot on what we already know to be true. Um, really interestingly, the similarity between encounter experiences and how aliens uh, are depicted in sci-fi became this feedback loop. As more people started reporting that they had been abducted, um, they started reporting that uh, um, they were like the ones in the movies. And then there was this, this feedback loop. Um, and weirdly, they all look like this. Uh, so when did the alien archaeology connection come about? It was in 1889, the author Garrett P. Service wrote science fiction about Martians um, building the Great Pyramid and then battling Thomas Edison in this series called the Edison Aids, where Ed Thomas Edison was this kind of superhero. Um, uh, so before this, it was common knowledge that humans had built ancient structures. They might not have known how, but they kind of, they had the, the, the correlate of medieval churches and cathedrals and castles saying, if you get a lot of humans together, we can do really, really big stuff. Uh, and it was only with a uh, service that there was kind of this doubt saying, oh, what if it wasn't humans? Um, pyramids had been kind of mythical. Uh, there's this belief uh, when Europeans were colonizing Egypt um, that you know, if you placed a blade under a pyramid at, full, at the full moon, that it would resharpen itself um, and other kind of mystical things, uh, mostly because the pyramids were very old. And so even in uh, ancient Greek times, the pyramids were 2000 years old at that point, And they had a kind of um, a mystical, uh, otherworldly aspect because people didn't really know what they were for. They're just these really, really old buildings. Um, I think at some point they did know that there was treasure inside because they were extensively looted. Um, so service also said that the Sphinx looked a little bit Martian. Um, there is a, a lot of uh, writing about what the Sphinx looks like. I think the Sphinx looks, the face looks really, really human and probably African. Um, and a lot of people have argued against that because of, once again, white supremacy. Uh, so the 20th century saw more ability to see and then explore space. And the more we looked, the more we learned, but no life was found. In 1966, uh, Carl Sagan wrote An Intelligent Life in the Universe. Um, uh, the suggestion that, uh, you know, there is intelligent life out there. Um, and this was a mistake, Carl Sagan. He shouldn't have said that because that allowed 1968 Eric von Daniken to write Chariots of the Gods, Unsolved Mysteries of the Past, which is really the bane of my existence because everyone wants to know about it. Um, <laughs> So chariots really forms the bedrock of conspiracy theory because it is sowing doubt. It asks questions about Egyptian archaeology that archaeologists had already solved years prior. Uh, so I'm going to just, just for a minute go through some of them. Um, he keeps saying, but where is the proof? And this is really what everyone who is producing ancient aliens and is into the ancient aliens ideal wants to know. They say, where is the proof? Fortunately, the proof is very close by at your local Egyptology museum, um, whether it's the British Museum or the Manchester Museum um, or other smaller collections scattered throughout the country um, or throughout the world. Uh, the best one is in Cairo at the Egyptian Museum. Uh, <clears throat> so 
Uh, first, Egyptians didn't have an advanced enough knowledge um, uh, of geometry of building to build the pyramids. And also we don't have the tools. Uh, this is incorrect. On the left is the Rhind papyrus. Uh, I used to work in the British Museum and it was in a little side hallway uh, where you could go and visit it. And it's a mathematical geometrical text um, explaining how to make triangles. Um, so they had the knowledge. Um, in the middle, you can see they had the tools. These are the same kind of tools that people used uh, for, for millennia. I mean, up until the 20th century when we had started to have big machines. Um, but even, I mean, this is a plumb bob. I'm an archeologist. I've I literally used a plumb bob today um, and a line rule to make a nice square hole. Uh, so Danikin argues there was no development of, pyra of pyramids. They were just kind of plopped on. They were perfect to start off with. This is not true. Um, obviously he has never been to Egypt or if he has, he hasn't really looked around. So here's the bent pyramid of Snefru. Um, it's an earlier version of a pyramid where they did mess up. Um, so it's kind of angled. And um, there, are, there are a bunch of other ones like this. There are smaller pyramids, there are wonky pyramids, there's a stepped pyramid. Uh, he also says there's no evidence of the workers. So they must've been built by aliens. And in fact, as early as 1922, there's the discovery of a city called Deir al Medina, which is the workers village in the Valley of the Kings where workers would live and they would decorate their own tombs by night. Um, oh, the Rhine papyrus was from 1858. Uh, so all of this evidence did exist, but he didn't listen to it. He just went and wrote a book um, and made a lot of things up. Um, additionally, um, he is not trained in Egyptology or archeology. span He's never worked in Egypt. He seems to have never consulted anyone actually working in Egypt. Um, and also he was convicted of multiple counts of fraud in his um, other job. He's um, technically a hotel manager. Uh, so I'm not saying that people who don't come from academia shouldn't be allowed to have opinions, but they should at least do research into what has already been discovered. A lot of times the people who are into the alien theories um, will say a bunch of things um, that's repeating things that come from Chariots of the Gods, which again, is not an academic text. And it does seem that um, it was written a bit tongue in cheek. Um, he does seem to say, oh, well, I didn't really know about that, um, but he wrote it anyway. And it's become foundational to many people's beliefs. Um, some of his ideas were even plagiarized from, from uh, service uh, and other earlier texts. Um, it's full of factual errors as most conspiracies are. Uh, so a brief moment to talk about Great Zimbabwe. Um, so this is the site of Great Zimbabwe, um, the, cap the capital of the kingdom of Zimbabwe. It was inhabited from the 11th to 15th century by up to 18,000 people. It has these magnificent thick walls um, and it was discovered by Europeans, by the Portuguese in the 1530s who were surprised to find it there because this isn't what they expected to be in this part of the world. Um, it was described in 1871 by a German uh, explorer um, who thought it was a copy of Solomon's temple um, and the home of the Queen of Sheba. And he said only a, uh, my italics, civilized nation must once have lived there. And so the reason that I think this is really relevant um, is because a civilized nation did live there. Um, it's just that they weren't European. Uh, this is exactly what's happening with, um, with the pyramids is that people are looking at them and saying, oh, well, they have to have been built by an advanced race or an advanced species. They couldn't have been built by humans. And the subtle subtext is that they couldn't have been built by the ancient Egyptians who were probably dark skinned. Um, just like Great Zimbabwe couldn't have been built by any of the local people. 
and it's dismissive and it comes from a tradition of uh, white supremacy and doubting that people from anywhere that's not Europe could have built their own uh, fantastic monuments. Um, it really has a lot to do with colonial attitudes. Um, so uh, theorist Julien Benoit said that we cling to a feeling of white superiority that emanates from the rotten corpse of colonialism. Um, so after the end of empire, um, uh, we Europeans have to make our, ourselves feel good about things by saying, oh, well, only, only we could have built these wonderful um, societies. Needless to say, people around the world have been colonizing and building empire for ages. It's just that we don't really learn about it in school in Europe or America. Um, so yes, it's reifying this um, subtle belief that ancient people, particularly dark-skinned people, weren't intelligent enough to build great monuments. Um, and actually nobody really talks about this very much, but von Daniken is a white supremacist. There's a lot in Chariots of the Gods um, that talks about <laughs> white supremacy theory uh, and different kinds of kind of focuses on his sowing doubt, but not on the things that he actually says, like this complete um, nonsense about uh, was the black race a failure and did the extraterrestrials change the gen genetic code by gene surgery and then program a white or a yellow race, which goes back to another 19th century theory about um, uh, cultural replacement, saying that uh, black African people in Egypt were then replaced by a white race, um, uh, who then built, who then maybe built the pyramids. Um, this is also incorrect. There's a long line of cultural continuity and tradition. Um, nobody get, doubts the Colosseum or the Parthenon or the Great Wall of China. They think obviously those were built by humans. Uh, so really, um, <laughs> what I think about the pyramids, because everyone always wants to ask me, um, the pyramids are the best way to stack rocks so that they stay up for a really long time. And the, the people who lived in the place at the time that they were built were the ones who built them with technology that existed at the time. We know that technology, we know they had the, um, the cultural uh, capital and knowledge. Um, so I want, what I want everyone to take away is to think theoretically. Uh, when we have continued representation of Western style white nuclear families, so the cave, uh, the cave paintings in depictions of ancient settlements, this perpetuates modern ideas of what men and women and children should do, bolstering the argument that such ways of life are innate and natural. And they subtly work to keep sexist attitudes and policies in place. Because if we say, look, people have been living this way with manhunt woman gather for thousands and millions of years, shouldn't we keep doing it? When actually that's not how people lived at all. When you see modern modalities of gender and sexuality re replicated in depictions of the past, stop and think. Um, and when we avoid researching and examining the actual origins of ancient sites by saying it was aliens, we're denying the heritage of non-white groups and insulting the intelligence of ancient people and their descendants. Um, I think it's very rude to say, well, no, your ancestors didn't build that, it was aliens. So why we need to cancel ancient aliens? Think, do you know how to build a house? Do you know how to build an iPhone? But just because you don't know how to do it, that doesn't mean that someone else doesn't. Um, we, I, we as a society tend to share our responsibilities and our knowledge. Um, and just because you personally don't know how to build the pyramids, um, doesn't mean that someone else couldn't. Um, there's actually a really great video of um, a guy building Stonehenge by himself, um, like somewhere out in the countryside. It's very cool, recommend. 
when you're listening to someone with alternative theories, do some research. Have their questions already been answered by archaeologists um, up to 100 years before uh, they're writing about it? Uh, is this person just pulling facts out of the air or have they actually done a Google search? Um, when you start to question scientists or scientific results, do a little search and see if other scientists are questioning it too. Uh, science isn't static. Science is always changing. Um, in science, there's room for debate. And particularly go on science Twitter um, and you know, see, see what's going on. So if you think, huh, this theory sounds a little fishy, um, then I'm probably there saying, this theory sounds fishy. Um, I did this recently with um, an AI of scanning faces for criminals. Um, they say, oh, with, with this new technology, we can see who's a criminal. And um, obviously it was saying that all of the criminals uh, were people of color because it was going from data sets that are made in a biased system. Um, and that's basically uh, exactly what people were saying in uh, the eugenics movement. And so I called that one out. Science is messy and inconclusive and we disagree on things. Um, we don't have an answer for everything yet. Um, so if scientists say, we don't know or it's inconclusive, it's not, they're not hiding something. They just, they just don't know. Um, So also don't believe something just because it's compelling. Um, not every story makes sense and we are still discovering things. Uh, if someone weaves a really nice narrative, I'm always very distrustful of it because it sounds like they've made stuff up. Um, yeah, science, science is uh, very, science is young. I mean, think, think how recently we've actually had the enlightenment. That was only 400 years ago. And since we've had the scientific method, less than hundred years, um, we're still going, we're still figuring things out. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Conway Hall is a registered charity, and as such, we are reliant on donations, now more than ever. You can learn more about our origins and history, join our mailing list, make a donation, or even become a member of the Ethical Society by visiting conwayhall.org.uk forward slash donation. And if you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to like and subscribe. Thank you.